Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching online, or later on demand, or even listening to our podcast, it's a great day to celebrate Jesus together. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not an hour's. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives, one little step at a time, learning to live like Jesus. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. We love to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us. Maybe you're skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too. So I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Sarah and Davis have chosen to write their own vows. So Sarah. I promise to care for you and love you our entire life. I promise to be your best friend. Whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just be saying best friend, okay? Pete's my best friend. Hold up. I thought I was his best friend. We've been through a lot together. Gosh, we have been through so much together. Second grade was really rough for us. I remember when he fell off the monkey bars. I mean, he gave me his fruit roll-up. I mean, I gave him my fruit roll-up. That was like... I hope he knows that he's my best friend. Our friendship has survived so much. (laughs) You think that this is gonna divide us? I promise to be your most loyal friend. I'm loyal too! She is confusing me so much right now. She is my wife, he is my best friend. Who's the best friend here? Who? As this journey of life completely changes us, we'll be together. Forever. Dude. 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 Aw, he's crying. <laughs> I'm gonna have to be gluten free. Oh man, dude. You go gluten free. I have to be gluten free. And I don't wanna be gluten free, man. Oh, it's the end of an era, Davis. It's the end of an era. Yes, I am crushing these vows. No one should have to be gluten-free. That would be something to cry about. Welcome to part two in our four-part series, What Happy Couples Know. Uh, For these few weeks, we're unpacking the it that sets apart some marriages from the rest, and we're hoping that good marriages will become great marriages. We're hoping that singles who are dating or hoping to be married in the future will have a better idea of what to look for in that special someone. We are hoping that engaged couples will start their marriage out on the right foot and that challenged marriages 
won't just become unchallenged marriages, but will begin the path to great as well. We know that not everyone is married, of course, and some of you are single by choice, some single by design. Please don't get the idea that I am saying that marriage is the be-all, end-all goal for everyone. I completely agree with the Apostle Paul that singleness isn't any better or worse than marriage. They both have strengths and drawbacks. God uses both singleness and marriage to make us more like Jesus. But if you are single, I want to encourage you to not check out during this series. For starters, the principles we talk about have application to all relationships. So there's definitely value for you in understanding them better for your own life. And you have friends. Friends who are married, who will inevitably hit a speed bump in their marriage. Who are they going to call? You. And you want to have good godly wisdom to pass on to them. This series will get you ready for that call. For everyone, we recognize that diving into stuff like this could stir up stuff for you that you need help processing. As pastors, we are committed to walking through that stuff with you. Some stuff we can coach you through and other stuff we can help you find a professional. Uh, so if stuff is stirring, please feel free to reach out to us for prayer, help, or direction. Okay, now with that said, let's bring everybody up to speed with a quick recap of what we discussed last time. All of us enter relationships with hopes, dreams, and desires. We have some hopes, dreams, and desires of what we want to be true about those relationships. Hopes about the kind of connection you'll share. Dreams about where the relationship might take you in life. Desires about the kind of relationship it will become. And while many of those hopes, dreams, and desires are pretty undefined at the beginning of a relationship, as you move from just friends to boyfriend and girlfriend to fiancés and then husband and wife, more and more of those hopes, dreams, and desires begin to coalesce into hopes, dreams, and desires that are a bit more tangible. As I illustrated last week, we carry these hopes, dreams, and desires around in an invisible bucket. To a certain degree, we have a, a hopes, dreams, and desires bucket for every relationship we are in. But in this context, that bucket is filled with the hopes, dreams, and desires of what you want your marriage to look like, of how you'll treat each other, how much money you'll have, and how you'll spend it or save it, whether you'll have a budget or not. We all have hopes, dreams, and desires about our home, whether we rent, lease, or own, even where we'll live and how near or far we'll be from our in-laws. Uh, we have hopes, dreams, and desires of what she'll sleep in, how we're going to handle chores, how we will navigate conflict and making up. We have hopes, dreams, and desires about the, the family we'll have, one kid, two kids, a whole basketball team of kids, and your kid will be a perfect angel, not like your best friend's kid. Uh, we, we all have hopes, dreams, and desires about what our future will look like. And the, the challenge is, the tension is, when we dream about our future, as we imagine what it will look like, it all organizes itself around our bucket of hopes, dreams, and desires. Let me put it another way. Although I can barely remember what life was like before Didi, when I was single, I never daydreamed about becoming the perfect person for someone. I daydreamed about finding the perfect person for me. Did anyone else do that? 
I, I didn't want to wait until I became the perfect person for someone else. So I just looked for the perfect person for me. Someone who fit my bucket of hopes, dreams, and desires. And when I found her, I put a ring on her finger as fast as I could. I just knew that this incredible woman would love to center her life around my bucket of hopes, dreams, and desires. After all, they were perfectly reasonable hopes, dreams, and desires. Who wouldn't want my hopes, dreams, and desires? The problem is, when we hand our bucket of hopes, dreams, and desires to another person, something happens. The weight changes. What is light, free, and life-giving for me becomes an expectation for her. And expectations aren't light, free, and life-giving. Expectations are heavy, life-sucking, and feel like bondage for the person you hand your hopes, dreams, and desires to. To anyone else trying to carry your bucket, it is all expectation that they're trying to lug around. An expectation is a strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. A strong belief that you're going to make my something happen. I know we aren't there yet, but we're moving in that direction. It's a subtle pressure that things are going to go the way I imagine they are going to go. It's a constant pressure for the other person to live up to your dream. Lots of what's in your bucket of hopes, dreams, and desires is a reflection of your past. You are either trying to create, recreate something good or avoid something bad. If your parents had a fantastic God-centered marriage, you might be wanting to recreate that for your marriage. Or maybe your parents' relationship was dysfunction junction and you want to avoid ending up with that. Anytime you try to recreate or avoid something from the past, your desires begin to feel like expectations because you're trying to create a preferred future that is exactly like the past you grew up in or preferred future that is the opposite of what you grew, grew up in. Either way, as soon as we try to shape a future, uh, the future of a relationship, to mold it into our hopes, dreams, and desires, we end up burdening our significant other with expectations. And when couples exchange buckets, and we do, I'm not sure it can be completely avoided, but when we exchange buckets, couples begin negotiating with each other, bargaining, bribing. If you will, then I will. If you do this the way I want to do it, then we'll avoid conflict and we'll resolve conflict the way you want to. If you go get on a budget and stay on a budget, then one day we can live in a style that you want to live in. And back and forth and back and forth, no one ever intends for this to happen. But eventually the relationship is characterized by a debt-debtor relationship. You owe me. That's what husbands are supposed to do. That's what wives are supposed to do. That's what men are supposed to do in a relationship. What women are supposed to do in a relationship. Eventually, you begin negotiating back and forth. You owe me. I did this, so you owe me that. And when this happens in a relationship, you can no longer recognize love. Giving or receiving love. Because re the relationship becomes transactional in nature and doesn't leave any room for love to be recognized or appreciated. Let me illustrate it like this. If you owe me money... Let's say we were out to dinner and you forgot your wallet. So I covered for you and now you owe me money. 
If you owe me money, you can't give me money. Let that sink in for a moment. If you owe me money, you can't give me money. If you owe me money and you give me money, I don't see it as a gift. I see it and receive it as a repayment of what you owe me. It isn't a gift because you owe me. And if you say, hey, Chris, I really appreciate everything you've done for me, and I want to give you this $100, but our dinner was nicer than that. We went all out. Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, dude. So you owe me more than 100 bucks. But if you only give me 100 bucks, then not only am I not grateful, but I don't see it as a gift or as an expression of your love and esteem. Because where's the rest? My gratitude is minimal. Now let me put it in the context of marriage. Your birthday is coming up. It's a big one. All year you've been hinting about a surprise party. You've been hinting about the gift. Even put it on your Amazon list to make it easy. You deserve a big weekend away as well because doesn't everybody get a birthday week nowadays? So how will you respond if I don't throw you a surprise party? Get you something else. And by the way, we're not getting away for the weekend. Like, where does love come into play if I owe you the best 40th birthday ever? Even if I deliver, I've just met your expectations. I've run through your hoops to make you happy because if I don't, there will be interest on the debt. That's what it's like in a debt-debtor relationship. As long as somebody feels like somebody owes them, they can't receive it as love and the other person can't give it as love. So how do we keep this from happening? How do we keep our hopes, dreams, and desires from becoming and feeling like expectations? Well, we do that the way happy couples answer this next question. What does he owe me? What does she owe me? Happy couples know that the answer to this question is one simple word, nothing. They don't owe me anything. Happy couples know that they owe each other everything, but are owed nothing in return. They owe each other everything, but are owed nothing in return which makes no earthly sense, right? But when you know really happy couples, it doesn't take you long to figure out that there is something about the relationship that doesn't make any sense. This is it. This is what a Christ-centered marriage is all about. I don't know if you've ever really thought this through, but I, I want to make sure that we all have the same understanding. A Christian marriage is not a marriage that is conducted according to some Christian code of conduct. That's not what makes a Christian marriage. In fact, no great marriage is built on any code of conduct. Anytime you are trying to build a relationship and you're trying to get them to act right, to behave correctly, you're headed for trouble. Great relationships aren't built on specific codes of conduct. Great relationships aren't built on specific roles. Great relationships aren't even built on an exchange of services. Great marriages, Christ-centered marriages, which is what we're talking about. In a, in a Christ-centered relationship, it all boils down to being in a submission competition. The kind of competition where both people are racing to the back of the line. 
That's what makes a great relationship, a healthy relationship. Instead of being in a competition to win, instead of creating a scenario where someone has to lose in order for someone else to win, instead of bargaining and negotiating, there's this sense that she doesn't owe me, he doesn't owe me, but I feel like I owe her, I owe, I owe him everything. Let me, let me help you where, uh, let me help you understand where this came from, where, where we came up with the I owe but I'm not owed concept. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, on the night that he was betrayed and arrested, just before all of that happened, Jesus was eating what we call the last supper with the disciples. Only they didn't know that it was the last supper. For them, it was just another supper, even if it was Passover. It wasn't all that different from any other Passover that they'd ever eaten in their lives. But Jesus knows, he knows that in just hour, thing, hours, things are going to change forever. So with the clock ticking, he says to the guys, hey, guys, listen up. I have a few quick things I want you to remember. I'm going to give you a new command to follow, which should have been offensive to these good Jewish boys. If they had had more schooling in their background, they probably would have gotten up and left the room. For them, the only person who could give a command was God, and God had already given all of his commands through Moses. So you can talk about all of these commands. You can unpack what they mean. You can apply them to daily life. You can prioritize them in order of importance. That's what all of the other rabbis did. But you can't make up new ones. But here's Jesus giving a new command and in doing so, he is making himself equal with Moses, in a sense, and claiming to speak for God. Now, you can see how this is such a big deal. This isn't done. And not only is he adding a new command to the list of 613 commands given through Moses, he's not making his number 614. He's actually not saying he is equal with Moses. He's saying he is greater than Moses. Because his command jumps to the front of the line. It trumps all of the other commands. Follow this and you don't have to worry about the rest. Because this does all that and more. Here's what he said. We, we read this together last week, so let's do the same right now. In John chapter 13, Jesus said, read this with me. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. That's hard for us to understand what an epic moment this was. Those of us who have gone to church our whole lives have grown up with this idea, so we kind of take it for granted. But it wasn't that way for the disciples. Not just a new command, not just number 614, not even number one, just one. And I'd guess at some level, those 11 men, because Judas had already left to run his errand, at some level in those moments, those men were thinking of how Jesus had loved them. How he called them one by one into something far greater than fishing, far greater than tax collecting. I'd guess they thought about all the times that they'd messed up along the way. Peter having gone from Jesus, you are God, to Jesus chastising him for being the mouthpiece of Satan. Nathan, Nathaniel's disbelief that anything good could come from Nazareth. Don't think 
for a moment that the moment they accepted Jesus' invitation to join him, that they arrived at spiritual maturity. They were still all on that journey like we are. But every time they messed up, there was no condemnation. No, I told you so. No, how many times, Peter? How many times? None of that. Jesus just loved them as he called them to something better. I'd guess all of that flashed through their minds in an instant. Okay, from now on, that is how you treat everybody. And a few hours later, Jesus was arrested, then tried, then crucified. And it would take, it would take them a few days, <coughs> excuse me, a few days to connect the dots, to figure out that Jesus gave his life on their behalf, on our behalf. And now he's asking us to do the same for other people. It's really rather simple. When you don't know what to do, when you, when you don't know what to say, just love like God through Christ loved you. How did God treat me when I was misbehaving? Well, that's how you treat others when they misbehave. How did Christ love me when I broke a promise to him? Love like that. Those are our marching orders. And then a few, day, a few years later, there was a guy named Paul, a guy who hated Christians, arrested Christians, and tortured Christians, a guy who hunted Christians down and put them to death, and then he became a Christian. He becomes a Jesus follower, and it completely transforms his life. And now instead of hating Christians, he travels all over the known world loving Christians. And as he does, he can see how applying this one, one simple command to this situation or that situation is more confusing than it needs to be, should be. But that's just how revolutionary this idea was. Yeah, Jesus, this looks good on paper, but how do you do it in everyday life? So the Apostle Paul takes this idea and he unpacks it in his letters to Gentile churches and Jewish churches and Gentile and Jewish churches. He applies it to all kinds of relationships, including marriage. Whenever you read anything the Apostle Paul writes in his letters that says, do this or don't do this or do that or don't do that, remember, remember this, every one of his commands is linked to this one command. He's just fleshing out what love others like I have loved you looks like practically. So these aren't new commands. Jesus didn't give us one command only to have other people add to them. He's just applying the command of Jesus. Which brings us to his letter to the Christians in Ephesus. In the New Testament book of, uh, that we call Ephesians, this is what Paul writes. He says in chapter 5, verse 22, For wives... This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I don't think it can be any clearer than that. We're done here. Let's pray. <laughs> okay, if this bothers you, and I hope it does bother you, the tech team is going to leave it up so it can keep bothering you. Let's be honest. This verse has been used and abused for hundreds of years. For some of you, it represents everything that was wrong with your old church. Maybe your dad used this as a power play for your mom and it left a bad taste in your mouth. It made you want to quit church altogether. If that's you, on behalf of Jesus, let me say that I am sorry this verse has been used as a weapon for hundreds of years. Even if it meant what people have said it meant for hundreds of years, 
It should never have been used as a weapon. That's just wrong. But here's the deal. And I want you to pay attention here because at some point in the future, someone is going to ask you about this verse and you are going to want to give a better answer. Our English Bibles are translations from Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And unlike any other document in history, there are thousands and thousands of copies in the, of the original letter, in this case from Paul, but thousands of copies of the original documents of the New Testament. And scientists have done scientisty things to determine which copies were copied when and have determined which ones were the oldest ones which means the closest to the original version of the letter. If you do a literal translation of this verse from the oldest manuscripts, here's what it would say. It would say, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, what do you notice? There is no verb in the oldest Greek manuscripts. There's no verb. The word submit isn't there. Now, before I explain why it's not there, let me help you understand Paul's original audience a little better. I'd like to claim that I came up with this on my own, but as I told you last week, we got the framework for this series from our friends at the Irresistible Church Network, and Andy Stanley deserves the credit for the research here. I'm not science-y enough to get this without some help. But when the Apostle Paul taught about women submitting to their husbands, and I'll get to that verb in a minute, I promise, just bear with me. When that first century audience church heard Paul teaching about women submitting to their husbands, where we go, what? And huh? Their response would have been, duh, not huh. Their, minds, their mindset would have been, tell me something we don't already know. Women had no choice. This wasn't new information. It wasn't even a big deal. It just was. This didn't surprise anyone in Paul's audience. And this may hard to be, be hard to believe, but no one was offended. Because in just about every culture, the Greek culture, the Roman culture, and even in the Jewish culture, they had their own version, men had something that was referred to as patria potestas. Patria potestas. Those two words together meant that men had legal jurisdiction over their children and their wives. Essentially, their wives belonged to them. So when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, they're like, yeah, because if we don't, they'll sell us, trade us, or have us arrested. They'll accuse us of a crime and there won't be any witnesses to defend us. So it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal to that first century audience. But it is a big deal to us because of what comes later in the text, which brings us back to that pesky little verb, submit. Why is there no verb in the oldest great texts? Well, the answer to that is that it comes from the verse before. This was a typical kind of grammatical, Greek grammatical way of doing things. You make a statement with a verb in it, and then in the next statement, you just infer the verb. You don't include it. Everyone just knows that it comes from the last sentence. Which should lead you to ask, well, Chris, what was the verse before? And I'm glad you asked. This, is, this one is the game changer. Verse 22 is set up by verse 21. So here it is. This sets the tone for everything that follows. And further, submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. And like, like everything Paul tells us, it points back to Jesus. As God through Christ has done something extraordinary for you, you are to demonstrate the same kind of love in your relationships with each other, including romantic relationships, including marriage. You are to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. In other words, men, listen up, submission is mutual. And this word reverence conveys a sense of awe. In other words, in light of all that God has done for you, in light of all the awe that comes with you forgave me, you died for me, you've forgiven me in spite of myself. All of that awe is not simply translated to your church attendance or to the worship that we sing when we're together. But that awe is to be translated into love for other people. This is why Christian marriage is a submission competition because the command to submit is mutual. It goes both ways and happy couples know that this is what makes a relationships amazing. I'm, I'm here for you, you're here for me, but I'm not here for you because you're here for me. I'm here for you because God was here for me when I needed him. So in honor of him, I'm going to leverage all of my resources, all of my talents, all of my gifts, all of me for what benefits you most. We may have different roles in our relationships. We, we may have different responsibilities. We may have different gifts and talents, but we do not have different value. I can't underscore enough how groundbreaking this was to the first century church. It was almost unbelievable. It was so disruptive to the Greek and Roman culture, which is why he began, like any good communicator would, on common ground. He began at the place everyone, men and women, agreed on. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. Everyone knew that a wife had to submit to her husband. So he begins, verse 21, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So submit to one another, and here's our common ground. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That, that last phrase is pretty important in the equation because without it, you'd be thinking, Submit to your husbands who are worth submitting to. If they aren't worth submitting to, then you're off the hook. But again, here's the deal. No husband is worth submitting to. Even the best fail. So the benchmark isn't your husband. It's Jesus who is 100% worth submitting to. And what he means is wives... I want you to place your man's hopes, dreams, and desires ahead of your own. I want you to deal out of his bucket, not because he expects it, but because your heavenly father requests it. It's not about him. It's about you and Jesus. Now, women, just wait a minute. Relax. I'm not done yet. We'll get to your bucket in a second. You see, what comes next was even more shocking than submitting to one another. 
For those of you who are bothered by the word submit, this is what it was like for that first century audience because they, they were bothered because in their culture, it was assumed what came next and it didn't. And for us, I guess that we are often bothered by wives submitting to their husbands because of what Paul asked the husbands to do. I'll connect the dots in a minute, but here's what Paul says to the men. Verse 25. For husbands, this means love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Our response to this is, duh. Of course a husband should love his wife. But that wasn't the way of the world in the first century. The men would have been, hold on. You clearly misspoke, Paul. I don't have an obligation to my woman. My woman has an obligation to me. To which Paul would have said, wait, I'm not finished. Here's the link we've been waiting for. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ. Paul was writing to a Christian audience in Ephesus. And the men would have been like, wait, wait, wait a second. I know how this story ends. This does not go well for Jesus. I know where you're going with this, Paul. We, we get the wives submit part. That makes sense. We have that now. But now you're telling me that I have responsibility. You're inferring that there might be some kind of equality with my wife. And hello, Jesus died for the church. So what are you saying here? Like Paul's still not done. He says, jumping down to verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. It's like Paul saying, look guys, if you can't wrap your minds around the theology of Jesus, let me make it really simple for you. You are to love your wife. You are to care for your wife, to protect your wife as if she is you. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. Because you, you can read this for yourself later. There, there's this holy mystery when two people are married. They become one flesh. There's no division. No pulling away. Men, your wives are one with you. And as many times as we've heard this over the years, this was scandalous in the first century because now he was making wives equal with their husbands. You see, the reason we bristle when we hear the phrase, wives submit to your husbands, is because our modern culture embraces the equality of men and women. So the moment we hear that a wife should submit to a husband, we go, no way, Jose. But guess who introduced this equality to the world? Guess who was the first person with any authority to declare men and women equal? The standard Sunday school answer is correct here. Jesus he argued for your value and dignity before it was even a category to argue for. And then the Apostle Paul comes along and says, Men, because, uh, because of the way Jesus views the women in your life, you are to treat them with extraordinary value. And, and if you're still stuck on the word submit, think about it this way. You can, you can submit to someone without love. 
If you've ever had to follow a bad boss, you know that you can submit to someone without love. But love will always lead you to put the other person first. So Paul is actually raising the bar for men. Unfortunately, it's taken the church a long time to catch up to Jesus and the Apostle Paul with regards to women. And honestly, in some places, they're still lagging behind. But don't be deceived by our Western culture. Equality between men and women isn't natural. In other places in the world, really most places in the world, women are still being treated the way they were in the first century. It's not natural. If it were natural, everyone would be doing it. But then again, Jesus came to turn the world on its ear. So back to Paul and his point. Men, listen up. What is life to you? What does your life mean to you? Paul's point, just put her before that. Like whatever life is to you, put her before that. And, and you can't do that as long as you have a big bucket of expectations between you and her. And women, you can't submit to your husband. You can't mutually submit as long as you have a big bucket of expectations between you. This is what happy couples know, that somehow they get rid of all of this and they become all for the other person. Which brings us back to the question I asked last week. How do you get everything out of the expectation bucket and back into the hopes and dreams and desires bucket? And then what do you do with it? The answer to the first question we discovered last week, in terms of how you get everything back into its proper place, it's that you decide that he doesn't owe you anything. She doesn't owe you anything. I'm deciding that you don't owe me anything, but I owe you everything. For this to work, and I know this is frustrating, but for this to work, it must be mutual. Why? Because he said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is what oneness in a relationship looks like. His best over yours. Her best over yours. Okay, now we get to your homework for this week. Last week I asked you to, to process two questions all by yourself. I asked you to ask yourself, what's in my bucket? You should know what's in your bucket. And then ask yourself, am I expecting, by accident or on purpose, someone else to carry my bucket for me? Expecting them to fulfill your hopes, dreams, and desires for you. This week I'm raising the bar a little. This is going to take a little bit more risk. This week... I want you to ask them what's in your bucket. You probably shouldn't ask them on the way home from church. Let's not start a fight right after church. But set up a time and ask them what's in your bucket. And then I want you to shut up. This is going to be really hard for some of you. Even when, when they are done, don't rebut your spouse. This isn't a debate. You're going to want to defend yourself and point out all of the areas where they are wrong. Don't do that. What's in your bucket? And then stop. Listen. Stop talking. If you've been married for a while, don't get mad because they should know what's in your bucket already. They're just doing what I asked. Don't take it that way. So just listen. And then women, when you are done talking, 
Ask your husband what's in your bucket. And now you listen. Of course, I can tell you what he's probably going to say. Nothing. Isn't it time for baseball? We don't even know what, that we have a bucket. We, we're not lying. We don't know. We, we don't know what's in there. We just expect you to fulfill these hopes, dreams, and desires that we've never defined. Guys, that's why I gave you a week to think about this. You need to know nothing is not an acceptable answer because it's not true, whether you've thought about it or not. And, and women, you should probably know that we are afraid to talk about it. But that's why we need to talk about it, men, because you are expecting her to fulfill it and you've never told her. Listen, if you can do this, this is the I'm all in question. It's the I'm more interested in what's in your bucket than what's in mine question. This is the less self question. And less self people are happier people. They have happier relationships, the richest relationships. Now, if you've listened this far, I can imagine what's going through your mind right now. You're thinking, yeah, but what about? And you're arguing with me in your head. Chris, if I take the pressure off, you have no idea what he's going to do. If I take the pressure off, you have no idea how much money she's going to spend. If I take the pressure off, he'll never come home from work. He'll just live there. He'll never follow through. She'll never follow through. If I take the pressure off, I'm afraid she'll start. I'm afraid he'll stop. But here's the deal. This is actually your way forward. If your whole relationship boils down to a tug of war, if the whole relationship is just you arguing over the bucket and you're on one side and he or she's on the other, then that's really no way to live. You'll never get to being a happy couple that way. At some point, you're going to have to let go of your rope and quit playing tug of war. And ideally, you both will just look at each other and drop it on the count of three. But we all know that life isn't that easy. So here's what, I want, what I'll tell you. If you are a Christ follower, you need to just go first. Let go first. And here's why. When you were dead in your transgressions and sins, God through Christ dropped his end of the rope. He did it for you. Even if you never did anything in response, he still did it for you. That's the gospel. And this is why everything in the New Testament after the resurrection points back to what God through Christ did for you. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what happy couples do. They put each other first in an effort to be last. Whatever that looks like in your relationship, find out what's in their bucket. Take notes and then maybe start taking action by dropping the rope. And if you're still thinking, Chris, what about my stuff? My hopes, dreams, and desires. What do I do with it? We'll get to that next week. Let's pray. Father, as we have been praying, we pray that you would do a, your perfect work in, in our marriages, that, that you would take uh, good marriages and make them great and uh, challenge marriages and make them great. 
that you would teach us what it means to put others first, to live with an others first mentality, not just in marriage, but in every relationship. The submit to one another command isn't just about marriage, it's about every relationship. Teach us how to do that in every relationship. Because Jesus did it for us. Sometimes that's going to feel like it's a battle. Sometimes it's going to feel impossible. Sometimes we're going to get stuck on the he doesn't deserve it, she doesn't deserve it. But you don't know what they did, what I I did. But help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us. And is now seated next to God the Father on his throne, advocating for us. Asking God to help us let go of the rope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, on your own or with others, will help the truth of God's Word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of the faithful giving of people who call Dayspring their home church. God's work in their lives has left them changed, has made them more like Jesus, and they've come to understand how God uses their generosity to encourage others to become like Jesus as well. So if you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege and to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. Until we meet again, I am praying that God's richest blessings would overflow in and through your life.